Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. So welcome to this episode of NeuroPodCases. My name is Arina Tamborska. I'm a neurology trainee at the Walton Center. Uh, this episode is about encephalitis, and um, it is a continuation of our previous episode on meningitis, where we talk a little bit more about the presentation of central nervous infections and also importance and interpretation of lumbar punctures. So if you haven't checked out that one yet, uh, then please do. Otherwise, let's uh, move on to infective encephalitis. Today, to talk about this topic, I have with me a Dr. Mark Elu. Mark is a neurology registrar at the Walton Center, and his research interest is specifically encephalitis and also diagnosis of it and management. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you today with us, Mark. Hello. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Okay, well, let's go straight on to the topic then. Uh, so um, in the first episode, we talked about meningitis, and now we're going to speak about encephalitis. So let's just sort of recap. Uh, what's the key difference between the two? So as we said in the in the meningitis podcast, meningitis is inflammation of the lining of the brain, uh, but with encephalitis, we're talking about inflammation of the brain itself, so the brain parenchyma. So patients with encephalitis compared to those with meningitis are more likely to have signs consistent with brain inflammation itself. Uh, so they're more likely to have seizures, behavioral change, uh, and that might be subtle. So um, you know we know that patients with encephalitis often have to present many times either to the GP uh, or to A&E before they get taken seriously and, and have the diagnostic tests that they need. So the, the clinical features might might be different, but they do overlap between meningitis and encephalitis, and often we're treating patients for both conditions when they present just to be on the safe side. Absolutely. So maybe slightly more subtle, a slightly more sort of involvement of brain parenchyma, as you mentioned, to focal neurological signs, seizures. But actually, you know, in practice, we often take both into account. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, who is our typical patient this time? Who gets encephalitis and, and what are the causative agents? Yeah, I mean, encephalitis um, can affect people of any age. The most common cause in the UK is, is herpes simplex virus type 1, by far the most common, and that has a kind of bimodal epidemiology. So there's a peak in neonates and infants, and then there's another peak in the elderly. But uh, as I said, it can affect people of, of any age. Um, so that's the most common cause. Varicella zoster is also an important cause. Um, so the virus that causes chickenpox and enteroviruses. Uh, so those are the viruses that will form part of the, the testing panel that most labs will use in the UK. Obviously, globally, there's lots of other causes and there are epidemic causes of encephalitis as well. So if you, you know, if you if you're going to be working overseas, then you know there'll be a range of other causes that you might need to consider. And then in in patients with other risk factors like immunosuppression, there'll be a, a broader range of causes uh, that you need to consider there as well. So um, uh, there is one question I really wanted to ask in terms of suspecting encephalitis. You mentioned HSV virus, and obviously that causes cold sores. Should we be thinking, you know, uh, cold sores actually increase your risk of encephalitis, or you? know this patient has cold sores and they have some funny neurology oh that's probably herpes simplex then so it's the same virus hsv type 1 which normally causes cold sores and, and can cause encephalitis so there is there is a link but it's not really a diagnostically useful link so about a third of the patients who have hsv1 encephalitis uh, have a primary infection so normally 
um, infants or children will have a crime infection and some of them will develop an encephalitis. The other two thirds, it's a reactivation of virus that they're already infected with. And most people are seropositive for HSV in most adults. And, and not many of those will have cold sores. So the link is not is not a kind of diagnostically helpful one. You know, you can't say that if a patient hasn't had a history of cold sores, they're not going to get HSV encephalitis. But it's, it's helpful to be aware that it's the same virus. Absolutely. And uh, before we chat a little bit more about the presentation, Mark, how common is actually encephalitis, viral encephalitis? Uh, how many patients in the UK would get it uh, every year? Yeah, so it's, it's, an un- it's an uncommon condition. So we're talking about... Uh, around five per hundred thousand per year uh, incidence. But I guess it punches above its weight from a public health point of view because it has such a high mortality and morbidity. So untreated HSV encephalitis has a mortality of 70%, mm-hmm. uh, which goes down to 10% with with the best available treatments. So it's a really important condition to be aware of, um, to diagnose and treat mm-hmm. promptly so that you can um, give patients the best chance. So that really preempted my next question, which was, you know, whether viral uh, encephalitis is a medical emergency. And the answer is yes, of course it is. Yeah, absolutely. And also has a very highly effective treatment. So you, you need to you need to make sure that they get that treatment as soon as possible. Absolutely. So let's go to a case then uh, and let's uh, sort of imagine uh, again one of the patients. Let's say we have a gentleman uh, in 70s who had maybe again some um, chorizo symptoms, just not feeling very well, a bit of headache, and then uh, becoming more forgetful, slightly sort of not behaving like his usual self to the family. They are getting a bit more concerned, but really what prompts them to bring him to hospital is Uh, when a couple of days later he has a seizure. Would you say that's a sort of fairly typical case and that would make you think about viral encephalitis? Yeah, absolutely. So I think as we covered in the meningitis podcast, a lot of the symptoms and signs are fairly non-specific. So, you know, in an elderly patient, there are lots of causes of confusion and we should always have brain infection at the back of our mind. I think in this particular patient, he's gone on to have a seizure. You know, we don't know whether he's had seizures before, but particularly if this is a new seizure, that's a real red flag, isn't there? There's something new in the brain that's going on that's caused that to happen. So you're going to be thinking of working him up for brain infection. Um, At this stage, as, as we said in the previous podcast, Uh, We don't know whether this is meningitis or encephalitis really at this stage. So you're likely to be thinking about both and you're going to be working him up in terms of basic investigations and you're going to be supporting him. You're going to be thinking about whether he needs treatment for the seizure. He has ongoing seizures and you're going to be thinking about whether you do a lumbar puncture now, uh, which is going to be the test that's going to tell you whether whether he has a brain infection or Absolutely. not. Absolutely. So sort of, I guess, uh, yeah, um, that's quite a few considerations there. But starting from the basics, you know, he's he's there at the front door. What are the first tests, first investigations you would want to do? And I mean, some of this will be repetitive, but just, you know, for the purposes of revision. Yeah, sure. So... You know, you're going to be you're going to be assessing him, trying to get a history. You may not be able to get a history from the patient in this case because if he's confused and has some uh, some amnesia, so you'll have to get a collateral history from his his relatives or carers. Find out what the time course of the history is. So how long has he been unwell? And what would you expect there in terms of days uh, rather than hours, or yeah, I mean, rather than weeks, isn't it? So if we're thinking here about a viral encephalitis, it's normally acute to, to subacute. So uh, you'd be expecting days to, to short weeks in terms of the illness. And finding out about his comorbidities, any risks for immunosuppression, then going on to do a focused examination. So examining his uh, him generally, looking at his vital signs, 
many patients with viral encephalitis will have a fever, which can be quite persistent and high. So that's relevant, making sure he has he doesn't have signs of sepsis, looking for any, any rashes, lymphadenopathy, any focal neurology. We know that he's had a seizure, so there are, are there any signs that there are ongoing seizures? Or could he be in status epilepticus? Mm. So could he, be, could he be having continuous seizures at this point? That's really important to pick Absolutely. up. And from the initial blood test here, I'm thinking of the basic bloods, like full blood count, electrolytes. Is there anything you know specific you would look for that would be supportive um, of the diagnosis? So lymphopenia, would that be in keeping with viral meningitis or sorry, viral encephalitis or not necessarily? Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, you may have raised inflammatory markers. I think, uh, you know, the, the basic bloods are really helpful to look for other causes of confusion. So as we've said, there are many, many mimics here that we need to exclude. So looking at the electrolytes, for example, is really important to make sure that there, there's not another cause of this patient being confused. Every patient should have an HIV test as well. So that's really important to remember when you're doing the blood tests. And uh, glucose as well as as well peripherally, I imagine, for everyone with seizures, mandatory check, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And then we've talked about lumbar puncture. How much of a priority is it and, and what are we looking for? Yeah, so the lumbar puncture is the really important diagnostic test here. So that will allow you to, to look at what's going on in the, in the CSF space and the CNS in the way that blood tests aren't going to be able to. So it's really important to do that. The, the question, as, as with meningitis, is should you start treatment before or after the lumbar puncture? And, and the answer is very similar to um, when you're considering meningitis. So if you think there's going to be any delay to the lumbar puncture, then start treatment straight away. If you think you can do the lumbar puncture right now, then it's reasonable to do that first. And in terms of the imaging and the contraindications to immediate lumbar puncture, that's covered in our previous episode on meningitis. So we're going to refer our listeners to there. In terms of results from lumbar puncture, so of course we would send biochemistry, we would look for the cell count, we would look at the protein count, we would look at the glucose levels in the CSF, and to recap, what would be the supportive results here for um, viral encephalitis? Yeah, so you'd expect a raised white cell count, so it's really important to stress that any rise in the CSF white cell count is really significant. Often people think, oh, it's a bit like the blood white cell count, you know, if it's a little bit high, we don't need to worry too much. But, you know, it should be less than five. If it's six, that's significant. And that's something that people don't sometimes don't quite understand. You should not have white cells, um, too many white cells in exactly. your CSF for any reason, essentially, is that is the core message. Exactly, yeah. Or at least you need to find out what's going on if there if there is a rise in the white cell count. And it may not be as profound as the, the rise that you get in bacterial meningitis, for example, where there could be thousands of white cells. This we're talking about it may it may only be quite subtle. Um, normally that will be lymphocytes if this is a viral encephalitis, but early on in the infection you can get a neutrophilic response for the first few days before lymphocytes take over. So that's important to remember if you're seeing the patient very early. The protein might be normal or might be slightly raised. The glucose is, is usually normal. It, the, the findings, I think, the, the messages, they might be a bit more subtle than they are for other brain infections. So therefore, the core uh, test really to confirm our diagnosis is the viral PCR, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. That's the one to make sure that you don't miss, and you may need to send an extra sample to the lab for that and, and stress that they need to do that as soon as possible. And the normal panel that the lab will do is herpes simplex virus type 1 and 2, varicella zoster virus, and enterovirus as the standard, the standard 3. 
If you have a patient where they're immunocompromised or you're suspected that they've acquired an infection overseas or something like that, then you'll have to talk to the virology lab and try and extend that panel and you can add other viruses in for other suspected causes. So I guess my uh, key question, you know, very clinically relevant, can the PCR be normal and in what cases you would not take the the normal PCR for granted and, and stop the treatment? So I guess in other words, what's the sensitivity? Yeah, I mean, the sensitivity on the whole is very good. The caveat to that is if you have done the lumbar puncture very, very early in the course of the disease, so within the first 72 hours or so, then the viral PCR can be falsely negative. So in that case, you may need to consider repeating the lumbar puncture after another few days to confirm that the the PCR is negative if you have a, a very consistent clinical presentation of HSV encephalitis. And I guess on the other side of that, can the PCR um, become normal if we've treated it? And after how many days of treatment with antiviral agents would you then say, oh, this PCR is negative, but maybe it's because we've treated it a little bit and therefore let's persevere and complete the treatment course? Yeah, um, so it can become negative. It's it's a bit different from thinking about bacterial meningitis, where you know the test can become negative very very quickly. So it's still worth doing the lumbar puncture if the patient's had several days of treatment with acyclovir, and often you'll still get a positive PCR result. Um, you know, if you're getting to sort of seven to ten days after the start of acyclovir, it may be negative. There's some evidence for looking at. CSF antibodies for HSV in that case, you can develop an antibody response, an intrathecal antibody response that can be detected and can be diagnostically helpful. I mean, I'd say if, if you get to that stage where you've had a patient who's not had a lumbar puncture for a week being on treatment, then it's worth talking to virology and perhaps infectious diseases for advice about that. And you might be in the sort of the space where it's just safest to complete the treatment, isn't it? Yeah. But we'll talk about it in a second, the treatment duration. So let's finish off with the investigations. Any other bedside tests like viral swaps, for example, if someone, I guess, has a rash? Yeah, I mean, so there are rash, for example, with enterovirus, you can have a rash, which you can sometimes get a PCR result from a swab, which is useful. You can also do a nasopharyngeal swab for other viruses that might be associated with encephalitis. So those things are worth doing. The next main test to think about is imaging. Imaging is, is really important for encephalitis. Many patients will end up having a CT of the brain when they're admitted, but the sensitivity for encephalitis on CT is fairly low, so the test they really need is MRI. And in HSV encephalitis, almost all patients will have an abnormal MRI. What are the changes uh, on the MRI in HSV encephalitis? It's sort of the textbook question, and if medical students are listening to us, this might come up in the exams warning warning. (laughs) Yeah, so HSV predominantly affects the temporal lobe, so normally you'll have Uh, signs of inflammation, so high signal on the T2 weighted images in the temporal lobes. Normally it it affects both temporal lobes, but one is predominant, so it's asymmetrical. Uh, And you may have diffusion restriction as well in, in, in that area. Is there any consideration about the timing of imaging, you know, is there too early to see the changes? And is there a role for repeated uh, imaging to see the resolution of changes, I guess? you know, Or do we just get MRI once in the disease course? If the, if the patient's presenting with a syndrome of encephalitis, I don't think it's necessarily too early to do imaging. The limiting factor is normally how quickly you can get the MRI done and also how good quality the images are, given that these patients are often confused and agitated and they might be moving around in the scanner. There's no clear guidance on repeating imaging, but it may be useful to, to see how the infection is, is resolved 
resolving, particularly if there are other complications developing, which I think we, we might go on and talk Absolutely, about. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so I think on the investigation side, the last thing to mention is EEG. So what are the thoughts on that and how helpful is it? When would we do it? So I think EEG is helpful. It's It's useful when you're requesting EEG to have a really clear idea of what answer what question you're asking what answer you're expecting from the EEG so some of the the circumstances where it might be useful is if there's you're thinking about seizure activity particularly if you're worried that you've not fully controlled the seizures or the patient might have status epilepticus it might have useful diagnostic implications particularly if there are lateralizing findings on the EEG so suspecting that there's a lateralizing pathology going on the EEG is likely to be abnormal in most cases and it will normally show signs of encephalopathy. So I think that covers the investigations quite nicely, you know, thinking about this basic assessment of a patient with a changed mental status, but then also the specifics of lumbar puncture, MRI and, and EEG. So let's talk about the treatment. So the treatment for the, um, the herpes virus that's causing encephalitis is acyclovir and it's given intravenously and you need to make sure you get the right dose of acyclovir because it's used for several different indications. So the encephalitis dose is 10 milligrams per kilogram three times a day intravenously. And often, pragmatically, you're going to end up giving these patients antibiotics as well, because as we've mentioned, you know, when, they, when they're admitted, you don't really know what form of brain infection this is. So often people will receive keftriaxone, for example, and acyclovir until you can narrow down that you think this is an encephalitis. Is um, it the same for a varicella zoster encephalitis or an enterovirus encephalitis? Varicella zoster is acyclovir responsive. The evidence is not quite as good for the benefit of acyclovir. Most patients will will be treated with acyclovir. Enterovirus doesn't respond to acyclovir. So if you get an enterovirus PCR positive result back, then there's no point in giving acyclovir to them. I guess the other thing to talk about is the supportive management, which is often really challenging in encephalitis. So as we've mentioned with the case, the patients are often confused, they may be agitated, they may need one-to-one care, input from uh, neuropsychology, neuropsychiatry. Seizure management can be very tricky, so they they might have quite resistant seizures that are difficult to treat, um, and often you'll need to get intensive care involvement. They may need to be intubated and ventilated. Patients often go on to develop other infections as a secondary phenomenon, so they might get a pneumonia, uh, urinary tract infections which need to be managed, electrolyte imbalances, uh, often they'll need input for their nutrition, particularly if their swallow is affected. So often these patients will have long hospital stays, often very tricky to manage. Let's talk a little bit more about the seizure medication. You know, going back to the case uh, our patient presented, uh, let's say with one seizure, would that uh, prompt you to start them on treatment uh, if they were not in status and the seizure resolved? In other words, is one seizure enough to start anti-epileptic medication in encephalitis? Yeah, I think so. This is something that as neurologists, we're quite hot on thinking about when we start anti-seizure medication. Normally, if you have one seizure, you know, the evidence is that you don't normally start anti-seizure medication until you have another one 24 hours apart to say that this is this is epilepsy, basically. Mm. The situation is a little bit different in someone with encephalitis because you know that they've got a structural brain lesion driving seizures. So it's possible that they will have had further seizure activity before presenting to hospital. So your your threshold for starting seizure medication is a little bit lower, I'd say. It's still a judgment call, but in general, I'd say you'd, you'd want to treat them and if they've had 
clinical seizure activity. And they would probably stay on it long term, isn't it? So I think that's sort of bringing us into the prognosis and complications of encephalitis. Quite a few of those patients end up with epilepsy, isn't it? Yeah, so um, you can make a distinction between sort of acute symptomatic seizures as a result of the acute illness and then patients who go on to develop epilepsy long term. And not everyone with acute symptomatic seizures will develop epilepsy. So some of them you will be able to wean off the anti-epileptic medication. But you're right in saying that epilepsy is a really important sequelae of viral encephalitis. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, the long-term sequelae then and the complications that patients who recovered from encephalitis might suffer from. Well, the the prognosis, about 10% of patients will still die of HSV encephalitis despite the optimal management. So, you know, it still has a a really significant mortality. Of those who survive, the majority will will have deficits. Most of these are neurocognitive or neuropsychiatric deficits. So people might have problems with memory, changes in personality and behaviour. And relatives often say that, you know, they're not the same person. And many will need long periods of neurorehabilitation in order to go back to a setting where they can care for themselves or be in the community. We've talked a bit about epilepsy, so many will go on to develop epilepsy, which sometimes can be refractory and quite difficult to control. So the morbidity from viral encephalitis is extremely high. And that's, uh, you know, the morbidity of one episode, let's say, but uh, we know that patients can actually relapse and the relapses of encephalitis are, are an important, you know, consideration. We often get patients referred from rehabilitation centres with the question of whether this patient is having a relapse of encephalitis. So what are the considerations there and, and what is causing that to happen? If we talk about HSV encephalitis specifically, um, having a what we call a virological relapse, so having a, another infection with HSV is is rare. Um, if you've had appropriate treatment. So, you know, normally we would give at least 14 days of treatment for HSV. Um, And then the guidance in the UK is that you would repeat the lumbar puncture to make sure that the HSV PCR is negative before stopping the treatment. So, you know, if it's still positive, then you need to carry on treating and repeat the lumbar puncture again. So you need to make sure that the virus is well taken care of before stopping the treatment. So if you've done that, then it's it's very uncommon for um, an immunocompetent patient to have another uh, HSV encephalitis. What we've recognised more recently is that a subset of patients can develop an autoimmune relapse. So um, some patients can develop a secondary autoimmune encephalitis with antibodies against the NMDA receptor. So it's probably too much of a big topic to talk about autoimmune encephalitis in this podcast. But it's just important to be aware of that there are some patients who have an inflammatory relapse and those patients are responsive to immune therapy. And it's usually, uh, am I right to say, it's uh, several weeks interval from uh, the completion of the treatment for, for the initial viral encephalitis that patients can get their autoimmune relapse. Yeah, so it's normally at least four to six weeks after the, the viral encephalitis that that will happen. But this is a quite a new area, so there's still a lot of active research and some of my research is looking at, looking at these patients. Brilliant. Mark, thank you so much. I think, you know, that opens a whole new topic that uh, probably calls for another podcast. And it would be a pleasure to have you again to talk about autoimmune encephalitis, which is your area of interest. (laughs) Yeah, thanks very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.